let's uh, go back to 1 Corinthians, where we've been uh, since the beginning of this year, and uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As we're standing, we're going to read verses 12 through 20 this morning. I've titled the message, Don't Go There. Don't Go There. And Paul writes, everything is permissible for me. Not everything is helpful. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be brought under the control of anything. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will do away with both of them. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. You don't know that your bodies are members of Christ. So should I take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Do you not know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For it says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every sin a person can commit is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor or glorify God in your body. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take this truth Impress it so upon our hearts that the difference we live will be evident. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. We're still talking about the difference. The difference. Uh, can, can you think of uh, scary places that you might have traveled before? You know, there's a, a list of certain roads to avoid. I wanted to share three of those Roads, three roads in America that we're told we should avoid at all costs. And, and the one that made number one on a list after a survey was done by a recent publisher, uh, the number one road to avoid was actually called Clinton Road in West Milford, New Jersey. I'd never heard of this road before, but evidently it's known for its phantom headlights. There was at one time uh, kind of a circus zoo where they had all of the, kind of the, what they called interbred animals, and, and we don't know what kind of crazy stuff went on to make this zoo happen. But people who drive down this road past where this circus zoo had once existed will say that there are all kinds of uh, animals that are maybe half one thing and half another thing that will appear in ghostly form from time to time. It's said that if you cross a certain bridge and throw a coin out of your car window that a boy who drowned in the river there will actually throw the coin back and it will hit your car as you make your way. I don't know uh, what teenagers are playing tricks there, but it's made it for a, a scary drive for a lot of people. And uh, word has it that even Satanists and Druids now meet in places along the woods uh, along this road, Clinton Road in Milford, New Jersey, uh, that that's a road, especially at night, they would say, people, uh, you want to avoid that road at all costs. The number two road that made the list was Dead Man's Curve in Claremont County, Ohio. Uh, many notable deaths have taken place as a result of going over the cliff of Dead Man's Curve. People say that you can still see from the 1960s a tragic, famous uh, wreck that had taken place uh, where teenagers went over the cliff in a Chevrolet Impala that you can still see uh, uh, sometimes at night a floating Impala going through the clouds there. 
near Dead Man's Curve. Some have even said they have seen floating antique carriages at night with scary figures. And then uh, the scariest thing along the way is, is you're told not to pick up the faceless hitchhiker that's walking around Dead Man's Curve. Uh, I've never seen a faceless hitchhiker, but uh, you're told not to pick up the faceless hitchhiker. That could make for a scary drive. Uh, the third scary spot in New Orleans, Louisiana, is Mona Lisa Drive. There's a park along this drive where uh, uh, years ago a wealthy philanthropist donated this money to build a park, and he gave the money for there to be a statue erected of his daughter who had died at a young age. He had, had lost his daughter as a little girl, and so he had a statue of her placed in this park after all he had paid to build the park. But some teenagers one night were goofing off and playing in, in the park, and they decided to uh, practice a little bit of vandalism, and they totally destroyed the statue. And so word has it, and of course you know New Orleans is already the voodoo capital of the country anyway. We're about to go to Haiti, I guess, which would be the voodoo capital of the world. But uh, in New Orleans, if you drive down Mona Lisa Drive, and his daughter's name was actually Mona, that uh, Mona, who had passed away many years before the park was even built, will appear in a white ghostly form and scratch on the window of the passenger side of the car and, and kind of moan a few uh, things that would scare you off of that area. Now, I'm not someone who's into all of the paranormal. I believe in the supernatural as it's revealed in Scripture, and not really anything beyond that. But I imagine there are some things that would make you not want to drive down certain roads. Paul is saying there's a road you don't want to go down. And he's saying this in a way, in, in 1 Corinthians 6, he's saying this in a way that he would do everything he could to say, this is a scary place, don't go there. You don't want to venture into this. You don't want to play games with this, it's not funny. You know, in chapter 5, as we saw last week, he talked about a, a taboo relationship within the church, and uh, we saw how he educated them in the area of church discipline as the church had neglected to deal with this man who was having an affair with his own stepmother. And Paul was saying, listen, even the Gentiles don't go there. And so he was having to teach them how to confront that and deal with church discipline. When, when you get into chapter 6, in the first eight verses there, he's still teaching them about believers not suing one another in the church in resolving their disputes among themselves and saying, listen, you should be mature enough in your faith that you don't have to go to the courthouse. You don't have to go to mediators who don't know the Lord to kind of solve the, the conflict and the problems within the church. And so it's kind of building on that idea of church discipline. Don't overlook this. Be sure to deal with this. And that leads him back into verse 9 where he's really dealing with several areas of, of where we can just get in the flesh, and if we don't realize, God has saved us out of that. He says, I, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate. Now, even though we have First and Second Corinthians, many people believe that that may actually be Second and Fourth Corinthians, that there are possibly two other letters that Paul had written them, and that God saw fit that two of them ended up in the Scriptures. But he says, I wrote to you in a letter that you should not associate with sexually immoral people by uh, know me, I'm, I'm in verse 9 of actually chapter um, 
5 here when he's dealing with the area of church discipline. But if you come over to chapter nine, uh, verse 9 in chapter 6, he says, Do you not know that the uh, unjust will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexuals, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, revelers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says, some of you were like this. Notice past tense. Some of you were like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So he's saying, by now you should be different. Those things that used to characterize you should characterize you no more. And, and so perhaps still with all that was in chapter 5 on his mind and, and, and the church discipline that he had taught them how to exercise, he's saying, listen, there, there are some things that as, as a church you just need to be sure that you're dealing with. And when we get into chapter 7, he's going to have a lot to say about marriage. And so for the next couple of weeks as, as we lead up to Valentine's, I look forward to getting into chapter 7 and, and how God defines marriage and, and what the purpose of marriage is and, and how wonderful marriage can be and, and should be. But here he, he's confronting some areas and he says these things should have changed. And he, he deals specifically with the area of, of the two most important relationships, your relationship with God and your relationship with your spouse. And why sexual sin is so grievous because it hurts those relationships. And he's saying, don't go there. Even though the culture they lived in, and can we say the culture we live in today, have both ventured into areas we might have never thought would be possible or even be socially acceptable among those who are outside the church. It's as if the sexual revolution of the 60s only put small leaks in that dam of our standards that was holding back that flood of dissipation that 1 Peter 4, 4 talks about. It seems that today not only has the dam broken, but the church has been caught up in the flood. And if godly homes, if Christ followers, if the church doesn't look for a biblical standard, a, a, a moral, and, and I don't mean this to sound... Um, self-righteous in any way, but if we don't believe that there is a higher ground, a morally higher ground, then we're going to get caught up in that same flood of recklessness that Peter talked about. And they won't think that we're strange because we are running with them. Now, what is in that flood of recklessness? Well, in the first century, everything seemed to be tolerated. Everything under the sun was being tolerated centrally and sexually. A lot of times we say, man, we have reached new levels of immorality, but the same things were happening there in the first century in the Roman Empire. But then we look around today and we see universities in their classrooms promoting that teen and even preteen sexual activity can be healthy. Uh, we look in our world today and we see a, a complete annihilation of the clear definition of genders. Recently, uh, a, a popular cultural icon, Miley Cyrus, says that she has now identified herself as pansexual while embracing several of the new ten sexual identities that people can choose from. Did you know there were ten? 
Some of us thought, man, when they went from two to three and four and five, that there were too many. But she says she embraces several of the ten, so that makes her a, what she would call pansexual. We're seeing more and more of this flood of dissipation. We are called to be different, however. By knowing our Creator, by knowing His purposes, and as we looked at in our life group this morning, Chris pointed out that God's laws were to protect us God's laws are to provide something better for us. And so before we look at it as something restrictive and God trying to kill our good time, those of you who are seasoned in the faith realize that, no, God has so much better for you. Teenagers, it's not that God is trying to say, you can't have fun while you're young. God is saying, I've got so much better for you than what this world wants you to get involved in. So how do we keep our footing? How do we continue to say, I am not of this world, but I am called to be in this world. I'm not of this world, and my citizenship is now in heaven. I'm a brand new person, but I'm not called to isolate myself from the world. I am called to insulate myself with the Word of God, and I am to be His missionary to the world. How do I avoid getting caught up in this flood? Well, first of all, I want you to see that we're reminded to recognize that there are subtle steps that lead to strongholds. And they are definitely true in this area of sexual immorality. He says in verse 12, notice he says, there are, everything is permissible. Literally what he's saying here is, there are all kinds of things that are okay. But not everything is profitable. He says, listen, he's not just talking about sin. He's saying there are all kinds of rights I could claim. There are all kinds of behaviors that if I'm doing that, you might not be able to label it as sin, but it still is not helping, it's hurting. See, as Christians, we don't like legalists who come to us and add rules to the Word of God and say, don't do this and don't do that, but if we're not careful, we'll take legalism to the other extreme to where we can say, well, the Bible doesn't say I can't do this, or the Bible doesn't say I can't do that. And we try to get as close as we can to things that can destroy us. And so he says there are all kinds of things that, that may be permissible, that may be legal, but it's just not healthy for me because I begin to take baby steps away from my purity. He illustrates it in verse 13 with the, the concept of the food for the stomach and the stomach for food. What is he saying there? He says there's a fine line in our lives, and, and many of us are familiar with this battle when it comes to food. But there's a fine line where we can go in our lives from eating to live to where now we live to eat. And we've got to be careful that we don't take subtle steps to where all of a sudden we realize that, wait a minute, I don't eat to live anymore. I live to eat. I can't wait till the next meal. I shouldn't say that when we're having gumbo after church today, right? But, but, but we have those tendencies to take subtle steps in the wrong direction. Nothing wrong with food. We need it. It's for the stomach. But when you begin to live to eat, instead of eat to live, he says you can be in trouble. And he, he uses that allegorically to picture what happens with sexual immorality. There are things that may be okay that you wouldn't call sin that will lead you in the wrong direction. Now, in chapter 8, Paul's going to deal with the whole attitude or, or the arguments we have about our rights. Well, I have a right to be involved in this kind of behavior. It's not sin, and nobody needs to judge me according to it. But subtle steps can begin to move us, begging for our rights can move us in the wrong direction. And it often starts with young people. Josh McDowell discusses in his um, 
dangers of dating. And, and, and some of the, many of the young people here have heard me uh, allude to these dangers of dating before. Uh, when he talks about the fact that the younger you have a steady in your life, the younger you have that person in your life that you say, that's my boyfriend, that's my girlfriend, and we're in a committed relationship. The younger you are, he says, the less likely you are to hold on to your standards of purity until marriage. As a matter of fact, he said, if by age 12, you have that steady, serious commitment, that 80% of the time, you will not hold on to your standards of purity until you're married. 14, it gets a little better. If you wait till you're 16, it gets even better. You're over the 50 percentile at that point. And then those who wait till they're 18 before they get into a serious, committed relationship with a member of the opposite sex are most likely, 80% of the time, to hold on to their moral standards until they're married. And yet, as parents, we don't even get that. Even though we faced the same battles when we were teenagers, we look at sometimes our 8 and 9 and 10-year-olds and we say, don't you have a girlfriend yet? Don't you have a boyfriend? And we push them into things that Scripture is very clear that they're not ready for. Even in the Song of Solomon, the, one uh, of the most romantic books that's ever been written, the author is saying, don't awaken love before it's time. And so we need to recognize subtle steps that can lead to strongholds. And the word sexual immorality here, as we pointed out last week, is the same word, porneo, which we get our word pornography from. And pornography becomes like that private drug but then the law of diminishing returns says that we need to embrace something more. If you have an opportunity to go back and look it up online somewhere, watch the interview that James Dobson did with Ted Bundy before he was, uh, died in the electric chair. And Bundy goes back to a, a, a secret addiction to pornography, even before there was a, That's what's so scary is this was even long before there was an internet. A secret addiction to pornography led that law diminishing return to where he got involved in more and more stuff that led uh, eventually to mass rape and murder. Everyone may not be a Ted Bundy. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that. John 10.10 says the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And he wants to ruin our lives with things like that. Those those subtle things, those those things that, the the secret sins that we feel like we, we can handle. Johnny Hunt in his... Uh, finishing faithful seminar that I, I was fortunate to hear back in the late 1990s. I, I never forgot this title of, uh, of a lesson that he did with a group of men. He said, this is 12 steps to an affair. 12 steps to an affair. I, it's like, man, he's going to teach us how to have an affair? That's interesting. But, but he gave 12 steps so that you would be able to discern where you were along these steps. And he used a lot of Proverbs. And I won't share all the scriptures with you. But real quickly, let me show you how subtle the process is in these 12 steps. He says, first of all, there's readiness spiritually. Like when King David was not in the battle, but he was back in Jerusalem when the other kings had gone to battle. There are times in our life that we're not where we should be doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're spiritually not walking with God, living out God's call on our lives, and we become vulnerable. So there's a readiness. Then he says a growing awareness of someone. Next, there's innocent meetings. Sometimes in those innocent meetings, there's a little flirtation that takes place. The next step is an intentional meeting where you intentionally go somewhere. I remember back when uh, Tina and I had, had dated a little while and we had kind of broke up and then I, I, I knew it, you know, we, we needed, this girl was for me. So I would intentionally try to be where Tina was going 
to be. And so there's intentional meetings. Uh, that was a good thing in that situation as we uh, were moving toward marriage. It's not good if you're married and you're intentionally trying to see somebody else. There's then public lingering where you're hanging together in a crowd. And then private lingering where it doesn't matter if there's a crowd around or not. So, and that leads to purposeful isolation where you come up with a legitimate purpose to be with somebody who's not your spouse. He says this is where a decrease in communication and intimacy at home begins to take place. And then pleasurable isolation, which leads to an affectionate embrace, a passionate embrace is the next step, and then the giving into the temptation, and then the final step is the acceptance of this new norm. Twelve steps. It didn't happen overnight. See, if the devil wants to get me to do an about face, the wonderful thing about Jesus, Jesus is just so honest with us, isn't he? God is so straightforward. When he calls us to himself, he uses the word repent, which means an about face. It's military language. You're walking in one direction, and, and, and you're, it's for sin and self. Jesus calls us to repent and about face to come to him, but the devil doesn't use the same language because he's craftier than that. He says, rather than to get you to do an about face, I want you to just go 10 degrees to the right and still look like you're headed in the right direction. And then five more degrees, and then a couple of more degrees. It is very subtle how he works. He's tricky. We try to tell young teens that the first six or eight steps that I just mentioned a moment ago, well, since you're not married, those steps are okay. And then we're shocked when they can't put the brakes on somewhere along the way. Young people, don't even take baby steps in the wrong direction. Put a slide up on the screen if we can. This is a picture of a place called Trolltunga. It means the, the troll's tongue. Some of you have seen this picture before because it's, it's, it's a famous shot of a, of a famous location that a lot of tourists like to travel to. As you can see, there's no railing or anything uh, on that tongue that is protruding out some thousand feet over the, the land below it there. It's in Norway. Beautiful picture, beautiful shot. It seems like, man, this is a great picture, and it would be fun to see how close you could get to the edge like this fellow seems to be doing. It seems fun until a couple of years ago, a young lady, 24-year-old college student named Christy, was standing in a location like this, was overcome, lost her balance. Lost her balance, simply tripped and fell, and fell to her death. Shocking and breaking the hearts of all of those who traveled with her, not to mention her her family. See, that's what the temptation is like. We're like, as long as I don't go over the edge, how close to the edge can I get? It's, it's the, we want the exhilarating experience. Let me ask you young people, let me ask you married people this morning, are you leaving enough room so that if you trip and fall, you're still on safe ground? Subtle steps. Why do we emphasize things like modest dress? Why do we emphasize doing away with all flirtation? Why is it that men should have a standard that they're not going to meet a woman alone 
for lunch somewhere even to discuss business. Why is it that we tell teenagers, no, it's not okay. You can make out all you want to as long as you know where to draw the line. Because you're not leaving yourself room for when you trip and fall that you don't go over the edge. Our goal should not be, here's Christ and here's the line. How close to the line can I get? Our goal should be, here's Christ, here's line, here's how, how close to Jesus can I get? See, we're asking the wrong question. We're saying, mom, dad, pastor, how far is too far when we should be saying, Jesus, how close can I get to you to please you? Recognize the subtle steps that lead to strongholds. Secondly, remember the sacredness of your spiritual unions. What is it he's providing for us? What is it that he's protecting? In verses 14 through 17, he was laying a foundation for the argument that he's going to give in 18 through 20, but he says, God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Why did he jump to the resurrection here? He's reminding us of something, that the same spirit that lives in Christ, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives in us. We have a new union. We're going to receive one day a glorified body. He says, do you not know your bodies are members of Christ? And so should I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Whatever I get involved in, I'm taking that which belongs to Jesus and involving the property of Jesus. Girls, if you've got guys flirting with you, coming after you, driving you crazy, get one of those shirts that say, my body belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. But he'll leave you alone then. Verse 16, do you not know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? And he moves from talking about this relationship with Christ to, to quoting scripture of the relationship that pictures that relationship with Christ, and that is our marriage. The two will become one flesh, going all the way back to that first marriage between Adam and Eve in Genesis. And he's saying there's a couple of important relationships here that you need to keep in mind. It's A, your union with Christ. And B, your union with your spouse. Other sin, he will come back and say, is outside of the body. Verse 18, every sin a person can commit is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a sanctuary? The Holy Spirit has come to live inside of you. Now, now here's the interesting thing about that. In the Old Testament, we read about the tabernacle that later became the temple. And there was a place within the tabernacle called the holy place that the priests would go and perform certain uh, rituals and, 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 and pray and, and, and stand as intermediaries for the, the sins of the people. And then they could go into, once a year on the Day of Atonement, into the most holy place or the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant would be. And they would sprinkle the blood of that sacrificed lamb. And that's holy of holies is the place where the Shekinah glory of God rested. And, and, and if we're thinking of living under the Old Testament, we can't think of a more sacred, more holy place that even the priest had to be sure he was perfectly clean before God before he walked in or he would drop dead. We couldn't think of a holier place than the Holy of Holies. And so when you're wondering, well, what kind of behavior is appropriate for a Christian whose body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? What do I have permission, Mom? What do I have permission, Dad, to do on a date? Here's the best answer for the 
Christ follower, it's whatever you would have been comfortable doing in the Holy of Holies. Because that's what your body has become. The tabernacle, the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received of God. So other sin, he says, is outside the body. You're violating a oneness principle here. You are one, to one extent, robbing Christ, to the other extent, robbing your spouse and seeking to involve them in something because of your oneness that they would not want to be involved in. You say, well, what if I'm single? I hear this sometimes. What if I'm single or I'm single again? You know, because I'm single, I don't have to really hear all of that. First Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5 says that this is God's will for you, your sanctification. And he says more specifically that you uh, abstain from sexual immorality. But he goes on to say this. He says, be careful that you don't defraud your brother in this matter. What defraud? Because when you're involved, first of all, even if you're single, you still, as a Christian, your body belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has chosen, as we'll see in, in the weeks to come, he has chosen marriage to be a picture of his covenant love. The relationship between Christ and the church is pictured in the commitment, the covenant relationship between a man and his wife, so that when you place a ring on her finger, young man, and, and you say the words, I do, and you are pronounced man and wife before God and God's people, then you are in a covenant relationship that sexual intimacy becomes a continual picture of. But before that commitment, it perverts that picture. But more than that, it violates somebody else and possibly, likely, somebody else's spouse. See, it causes a lack of trust that has to be rebuilt. Sometimes, and I would say the overwhelming majority of the time for Christians, the couple that gets involved in sexual immorality before they get married, the majority of the times they don't even marry each other. And that means that it could be that a Christian brother has defrauded another Christian brother by taking something that belonged to that Christian brother. Something that was to be saved for a covenant relationship. It hurts the body of Christ as a result. So then, can God save, deliver, and heal? Yes, but there are issues of guilt, trust, and control issues that future spouses will feel and, and experience and feel even defrauded in this. Feel defrauded even by somebody's ex. So it's important for singles to grasp this as much as it is anybody. And then what do we do? And then number three, we remove ourselves quickly from sensual attacks. We remove ourselves quickly. So see, we got to, we've got to recognize the subtle steps. It is very subtle. We need to remember the sacredness of our spiritual unions, but sometimes the spiritual attack, the, the sensual assault is just right there in your face. You didn't expect it. You didn't ask for it. But sometimes in the world in which we live, See, I remember growing up in an age at least where guys were expected to call girls. Now there are guys, you know, they're, they're, they're cursed with that, that horrible curse of good looks in their teenage years, and they're like, Pastor, the girls are calling me. You know, what do we do in those moments? Remove yourself quickly. And in verse 18, what does he say? He says, run. Flee from sexual immorality. Run. 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul told Timothy, this young preacher boy says, man, temptation can come at preachers just like anybody else. Run from it. 
flee youthful lust, pursue righteousness, get as close to Jesus as you can. God is trying to protect the marriage bed, something that in Hebrews he says is undefiled. It's a wonderful thing, but I want to protect it because it is a wonderful thing. It's a greater experience than most of the world will ever be able to embrace because they won't protect it. Genesis chapter 39, Joseph, remember, he's working there for Potiphar. He's in Potiphar's home. He's kind of steward over everything that belongs to Potiphar. Potiphar's wife comes to him, and she takes him by the cloak, and she says, come, lie with me. And Joseph does, there's three different verbs that are used there. He left, he fled, and he ran. He even left his cloak in her hands, but he, as one preacher said, slapped it B for boogie, and he got out of there as quick as he could. He left, he fled, he ran, he got as far away from her as quick as he could get away from her. Now, let's be clear, there are times in life where you need to stand your ground. There are times in life where you need to, as the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. There are times in your life you need to stand on what you believe and stand up for Jesus and not back down, not run away, and not back away. But the Bible doesn't say that when it comes to sexual or sensual temptation that attacks the flesh. It tells us to run. It tells us to get as far away from it as we can. Something scary, something to avoid at all costs. If you ever hear of somebody say they drove by my house and they say, you won't believe this, we saw your pastor in the backyard or the front yard and he had his shirt off and he was swinging in the air acting like a crazed idiot. And we knew that was a cult over there at Trinity anyway and he was cutting off. No, just kidding. Man, we, we, what in the world is wrong? Has he lost his mind? If that ever happens, I guarantee you one thing. I've just walked through a spider web. I've just walked through a spider web. I, either I was out cutting grass, playing with the kids in the yard or something, but I hate spiders. And, and I'm a guy, I mean, I had a roommate who had a pet snake that I used to let crawl around on me. And snakes don't bother me so much, but spiders, my family would tell you, I can't stand spiders. So if I'm in the yard and I'm walking through and all of a sudden I walk through a spider web and I just think maybe that baby's on me somewhere. I mean, my shirt's coming off, and I'm looking, and I'm jumping around, and I don't want to be bit by that thing. Don't like spiders. Now, if they're in the house, I've gotten a little braver over the years. I'm going to go after them a little quicker than I used to. It used to concern my family. I mean, they didn't want to go after it so quick either, but they were like, Dad's not going to move quick enough to get the spider before he gets away, you know. I move a little quicker than I used to, but I hate spiders. I mean, I, I hate spiders. I'm not trying to set myself up for any practical jokes when we go to Haiti next month, but don't like those things. That's the way we're supposed to feel about sexual sin. If it's trying to get into the house through the television, the radio, or the boyfriend coming over, the internet, whatever, we're supposed to, as quickly and as courageously as we can, say, no, 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 we've got to get that out. That that's, can't be a part of our home. And then when we're out and about minding our own business and it just seems to come upon us, we're to get away from it as fast as we possibly can. 
as quickly as we possibly can. We should respond just as strangely in the world's eyes to sexual immorality so that people are like, what are they, what are they doing? To the same degree that the person driving down Brickyard Road would say, what is that crazy preacher doing swatting at the air like that? For those with scars, those who would say, I've blown it. Here's, here's one of the lies of the enemy. And sometimes young ladies are quicker to believe this lie because they might think more emotionally than rationally at certain moments, but here's the lie of the enemy. He will say, you've already messed up. You've already blown it, so you might as well continue to live in it. God can save. God can deliver. God can heal. God can restore. Romans 6, 1 and 2, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we that have died to sin continue any longer? We can still repent. We can still be renewed. Will there be scars? Absolutely. Will it take time for healing? Listen, when you get involved in sexual immorality, it's going to take lots of time to heal and to deal with that. And in future relationships, people are going to have to walk with you through seasons of healing and dealing with that. But don't buy the lie that you might as well continue in it because you've already blown it. The process of healing and dealing can't start until we repent. So Let's make good decisions. Let's avoid those subtle steps. Let's be radical in this area. Avoid those subtle steps toward strongholds. Let's be determined to protect that oneness, that, that unity I have with Christ and, and with my spouse or future spouse. And then let's run like crazy from impropriety. Don't look for opportunities that will set you up for failure. Don't get so close to the edge that when you trip and fall, and you will trip and fall from time to time, that it puts you over the edge. Stay as close to Jesus as you can and seek to honor Him in every area of your relationships, in your mind and in your heart. And if you've already, like, man, I'm just, Pastor, if you only knew, listen. Jesus said, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery in the heart. It means everybody's got a battle that they face to some degree. Let's stay in the battle. Let's fight the battle in history. And if the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives in us, let's realize, wait a minute, that's not just giving me a warning, that's giving me my source of power. That's, that's giving, see, if I walk according to the spirit, Galatians 5 says, then I will not desire to please the flesh. For he walks in the spirit, does not seek to please the flesh. And so let's learn to walk in the spirit and walk with Jesus. Go where he leads us and away from what he takes us from. Young people, don't, don't think that God or your parents or your pastor is trying to mess up your good time. God wants the best for you, and he knows the enemy will get you to settle for less than that. Don't buy the lie. Don't settle. Would you bow your heads?